electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Georgia Boza with John Fort. Carl has the morning off today. Tesla takes another tumble. Add a miss on deliveries to their troubles as the stock comes off its worst year ever. But we've got a fresh bull take this hour, plus two upgrades for two fintechs. Why Wall Street is optimistic on PayPal and Block in 2023. PayPal, the top gainer on the S&P right now. And later, is Workday the surprise stock of the new year? We've got two guests calling it a dark horse top pick today. John, happy new year. Ah, thanks, Dee. Happy new year to you as well. The markets overall kicking off 2023 the same way we ended 22 was some volatility and uncertainty. Lots of optimism at the open with the Dow seeing a nice 240-point gain before it went about flat where it is now. Same story with the NASDAQ uh, as it loses a 1.4% gain now about flat along with the S&P economic data and a huge decline by Tesla, as you mentioned, D to blame. And, and I think... This Tesla thing is in a way about more than Tesla, right? Because the missed delivery numbers have brought the stock back down to around where it was at the lows last week. And it raises questions about demand for Teslas going forward, about inventory and what the impact is going to be on labor and production levels. Because now that they've got this inventory built up, do they need to keep making as many? So many different companies, not just in tech, but throughout the economy, might be asking the same question once we start to get results in about two weeks, right, on Q4, how December actually ended up. We don't know yet, and we're not going to know exactly what Tesla's going to do until we get those more detailed numbers from them as well. And it's not just Tesla causing some of the pressure here. We're starting off 2023 much in the same way that we saw 2022, and that is what's under pressure. It's tech. It's the Nasdaq leading the way. But in 2021, right, we saw a lot of these pandemic darlings, high-flying growth names come back down to earth. To start off this year, we're seeing Tesla, we're seeing Apple decline, and these are the mega cap names. So are we going to start to see them decline, especially some of the hyperscalers as maybe cloud demand decreases? And this is also with Apple a demand issue. Um, Are they going to have to scale back some of that production as well? These are going to be questions uh, for the year ahead. As we mentioned, though, as you mentioned, John Tesla, that is the biggest loser in the S&P today. Shares are down big this morning, and that follows a miss on year-end deliveries. Now, as the stock closes out, it's worst year ever. You got to wonder, is a turnaround ahead or perhaps new leadership? Elon Musk is promoting Tesla's China chief, Tom Zhu, to oversee the company's plants and sales operations here in the U.S. Joining us now is our own Phil Lebeau, as well as New Street research analyst, Pierre Fergu, who has a buy rating on Tesla. Phil, let me start with you. Talking a lot about Tesla and the fundamentals, it is still the world's most valuable car maker. But we're talking demand. We're talking gross margins, more discounts. Yep. Can it still justify? How does it justify that valuation going forward? Great question. I don't have an answer. and I'm not sure anybody does have an answer, uh, D. because here's the question. What valuation are you putting on this company, especially as they see delivery slowdown relative to expectations, as well as gross margins being 
uh, pressured relative to where they were. And how much pressure does that, that, that how long does that continue? So those are unknowns that are out there. And think about this. We really haven't seen a true recession for the EV industry where they've had to work in a, in, in a lengthy recession. Yes, you can talk about when the pandemic began, there was a big drop in, in demand, but it, it, that, that was a very short blip. And it really wasn't the EV industry as we're looking at now, where the question becomes, is the demand, is the demand going to be there for electric mm-hmm. vehicles that was expected to be there? And I think a lot of people are questioning that right now. And if it's not going to be as robust as it has previously expected, either in this year or next year, then the question becomes, how much do we have to scale down expectations for Tesla? Right. Well, Pierre, you have a $450 price target for Tesla. So obviously you do have some conviction that it is still going to grow to fast clip. What is baked into that valuation? Is it going to continue or can it grow at 50 percent annually or does that have to come down? It missed this year by, you know, a large margin. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very good question. Um, so we, Tesla um, was trading, you know, nine months ago on like 40, 50, 60 times earnings. And so when you get into that kind of valuation level, very high multiples, that means the street is anticipating what I like to call a very long duration high growth. So the business is going to grow for a very long time at a very high rate. And you can imagine today that when we see like the near-term outlook uh, getting very cloudy, Phil describes that very well. It is the first time for everything. First time we get into a recession for a EV manufacturer. First time we see like a super high growth business like that uh, getting into that kind of recession with products that on average sell for $55,000, which means that people don't buy that just out of their pockets. They need to borrow money for that. And you were just talking about how interest rates uh, uh, we're including so there is so many there are so many uncertainties for this year that like the kind of growth rate we should expect for Tesla for the next ten years nobody is looking at it right now because there is no visibility our price target is actually reflecting confidence into that into this incredible characteristic of Tesla which is that they are selling on a run rate basis today 1.8 million cars a year um, and they are just at the very beginning of a cycle that is going to basically, over the next 30 years, replace almost a billion cars that are out there on the road by electric cars. And we believe they're going to grow very, very fast for a very long time because they well, benefit what, from that What's fast, is that, is that 40%? Is it 50%? Is it more? What, what's fast to you? Yeah. So fast to me is very simple. It's less, uh, not as fast as uh, Elon wants it to be. Elon, you know that how much Elon Musk is here of Tesla is often too optimistic. So he's like managing Tesla to deliver 50% growth in units every year. I think Tesla will fall short of that. So I think good okay. growth would be 40% in volumes. And okay. of course, in order to get that growth, you need well, to reduce your prices over time. So it's going to be between 30 and 30 percent growth uh, in yeah. value. So something, though, Phil, that the Tesla bulls have held on to is that earnings estimates over the last few months, they haven't actually moved all that much, although you are starting to see them come down now. So how does that right. change the proposition here? Oh, that's going to change in the next couple of weeks here, especially as people can now say, OK, we have the number of deliveries. We know that there was compression on the gross margins, especially in December. The company was out 
marketing its vehicles with discounts, both in China, the largest market, mm -hmm. and here in the U.S., its second largest market. So when you put that all together, you are seeing the estimates already come in a little bit. The, uh, a number of the analyst notes yeah. today have said they're, they're expecting them to come down. So, look, I, I think to a certain extent, whether or not they come down a lot or a little, this hinges largely on, and when I say this, the future of Tesla stock, where the pricing is over the next month or so, I think it hinges on what Elon Musk says yeah. on the conference call January 25th. Does he change the guidance? What does he say in terms of uh, this compression of margins? He's put out these statements saying the future is bright. Long term, we're going to continue growing. Fantastic. That, that and a cup of coffee, I mean, it's not worth anything. You, right. you need something substantial. That is what people are going to be waiting for. Yeah, well, all good points, uh, Pierre and Phil. Thanks for being with us. And, John, we should note as well, we just showed you um, Wall Street ratings, 64% rated as a buy hold. A year ago, the sentiment was 49% buy. So even the street is is changing changing its tune on Tesla. It's down more than 10%. Well, you know how those ratings go. Uh, and as we talk about that, let's also talk about the broader market. As we start a new year, we also get a new market. Are those bears getting tired yet? Our own Mike Santoli thinks last year's downturn could spell a strong starting point for 23. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. Well, at least a stronger one. Uh, if you were basically looking one year ago today, you were buying the S&P 500. Take a look at what's happened to valuations. You were buying the S&P 500 at 21 times forecast earnings. Uh, if you wanted to add some Treasury bonds to that, the 10-year was under 2%. Not much of a cushion, and, and strategists were saying, hey, we're probably going to go up 10% in the S&P. So expectations relatively high. All that has changed at least to a degree uh, since then. So you see here the NASDAQ 100. That's really where the, the epicenter of the valuation extremes were at the highs. Now, that, a lot has uh, kind of happened to compress that, but just not that much. You still have this premium. It's gone from about 30 down to 20, uh, whereas the S&P has gone from more like 21 down below 17. By the way, you took a dollar, put it in each of the 500 S&P 500 stocks, weighted them equally. You're paying about 14 times forward earnings. Now, all that uh, doesn't necessarily mean the market is cheap. We're just down to sort of average valuations. We still have a, a Fed that has more work to do, perhaps unfinished business on that side of things. Uh, so I don't say that we're necessarily uh, some, somehow at a compelling buying opportunity. But if you're starting a portfolio today, you're closer to being able to anticipate the historical annual rate of return that the markets have given you versus where we were about a year ago, John. Okay. Uh, and, and Mike, so what, if anything, can we take from the last time stocks are down for two straight years during the dot-com crash? I mean, uh, things kind of bumped around at low levels for a while, didn't they? Yeah, they did. In fact, it was at that point three years in a row. So uh, one thing you could take from it is that there are some similarities in the sense that technology was where, you know, the valuation excesses were and they took a long time to be wrung out. Now, they were more extreme back then than they are right now. You did also have a tightening Fed into the start of that. And really what would in historical terms qualify as a relatively modest recession. Main Street did not really have a terrible downturn, whereas Wall Street did. So I think you want to keep that in mind as maybe the cautionary side of the probability spectrum. Uh, I'm not saying we have uh, a rerun underway, but it, it is something to, to, to certainly be mindful of. Uh, by the way, the, the global financial crisis, and this is just the way calendar years fall, we only had one down calendar year. 
<laughs> that was, you know, uh, 2008 because the market hit a record in October 2007. And by the latter part of 09, we were already on the, the upswing. So, uh, you know, the calendar year stuff can be a little bit of a uh, of an obscuring force because we did peak exactly a year ago today. Yeah, we, we had quite a calendar, as you just referenced, in, yeah. in 2022 as well. Mike, thank you. So will 2023 be different? And if so, how should you position your portfolio for the year ahead? Our next guest sees value in Microsoft, in Cisco, uh, bullish on legacy tech following IBM's outperformance in 2022. Let's bring in BMO Wealth Management Chief Investment Strategist, Young Yu Ma. Happy New Year, Young Yu. So um, g- give me your sense of not just why legacy tech uh, is pretty good, but what to do with growth tech. Do you just ignore it completely, even if you've got a long time horizon? Uh, thanks, John. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on. That's a great point. You know, we do think there's a lot of opportunity still in the marketplace. We don't want to abandon growth tech. We think that one thing that 2022 has shown us is who some of the winners are going to be. You saw companies such as Workday not just beat estimates last quarter, but actually raise guidance. So definitely some winners out there. You don't want to ignore them, but you want to stick with the big companies, the companies that have very stable platforms, broad offerings. We do think it's going to be a year uh, where big wins, where companies uh, that are spending money look to consolidate some of their vendors and some companies such as Microsoft start gathering a bigger amount of IT spend going forward. So we do think that's one theme going forward, but we also like value. Within tech, we think there are good value plays that are starting to emerge. As Mike said, valuations overall have gotten a lot cheaper. If you equal weight the S&P 500, uh, the valuations look a lot better. And we, we do think there are areas that are still stable and will uh, and you can get at much cheaper prices than you could get last year. Young, you here's my worry and tell me how you balance this out. Bigger tech companies actually fared better in 2022, relatively speaking, maybe didn't fall as much. And as we're heading into a potential recession, we'll see how how extreme uh, it, it might turn out to be if we get it. In 2023, those stocks might suffer more. At the same time, some of the growth names down big. I mean, PE snapping them up. Some of them seem to be rebounding off the of lows as they report a demand continues to be strong for unique technology. So is the investor going to fade smaller tech stocks at exactly the wrong time? Well, we think there's more risk in smaller tech stocks. There, there are definitely still going to be some winners. You don't want to abandon them altogether, but you want to look for companies that are able to continue to grow sales, continue to grow earnings, that have a strong path to profitability. Uh, but overall, we do think that the bigger players are likely to get uh, more of the IT spend going forward. So you just have more risk. It's not that you want to abandon them, but you want to be very selective. You want to look at end markets. Uh, the end markets that look more stable and strong. We think that data centers will continue to be an area that, even if we see estimate cuts, will finish 2023 pretty strong. Same with automotive, same with industrial. So it's also a year where you want to think about what these companies are selling into. What are the end markets? Because we think consumer will probably still right. stay relatively soft this year. Right. And your thesis, Yang Yu, depends on a soft landing scenario. So walk us through that. You say that that could happen on the back of a resilient labor market. But isn't that at odds with what the Fed wants to and needs to achieve? Doesn't that simply mean higher rates for longer and that would be a negative for tech? Well, we do think that interest rates are going to stay pretty stable throughout 2023. We're going to see probably one or two more increases from the Fed 
Uh, but we think interest rates will stay relatively flat after that. But we think the economy can recalibrate to those higher interest rates. They're not unprecedented, the level we have. What's pretty unprecedented is the speed at which interest rates have risen. But once the economy recalibrates, we think we can achieve a soft landing. And by that, we think the labor market can stay stable. The Fed can achieve what it wants to achieve because inflation should still fall. And the labor market can soften on the edges and growth can stabilize in the second half of the year. So we are expecting a soft landing, but we're also expecting a couple quarters of earnings estimate cuts going forward. So it could be a bumpy ride here, but amid that bumpy ride, we think there are opportunities that will emerge. All right, yeah, as we mentioned, Tesla, one of many names in the market, at least looking like it's gonna have a bumpy ride. Young, young Yu, thank you, Young Yu Ma from BMO. And now still ahead is more social media regulation ahead, plus what to expect from SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried in court today. Tech Check is just getting started. Time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. Let's take a look at Apple. Uh, it is down, let's see, um, about 3.5%, a little more than that. But interestingly, that takes it below the $2 trillion market cap level. Uh, the stock was down nearly 30% in 2022. And right now it looks like it's about 10 bucks a share away from what would be the two-year mm -hmm. low, D. Yeah, as you said, John, a lot of the mega cap names, they were relatively stable within tech last year. So could be more room to fall. Uh, Apple, of course, as goes Apple, as goes the market, as we like to say. say. So worth watching now down nearly 4%. Meta, though, another mega cap name, it, I guess, lost a lot, but it is an early outperformer in a down market to start 23 against the backdrop of what appears to be more regulation coming, though we say that all the time for social media. Julia Borston has a primer on some of the changes that could be ahead in 2023. Julia, if you think about it, it's actually been a relatively calm, scandal-free period for Meta because another name, TikTok, has taken all the attention. 
TikTok is definitely drawing the spotlight right now. And let me tell you what one congressman called it, digital fentanyl. That's what Congressman Mike Gallagher compared TikTok to on Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press, saying he thinks the ban on TikTok from government devi devices should be expanded nationally. But TikTok is just one of the tech firms that's being targeted by Congress right now. Now, on December 21st, Senator Klobuchar, along with other Democratic and Republican senators, introduced what they call the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, a bipartisan bill to increase transparency around social media companies. It would require social media platforms to share data with the public and with researchers about what type of data and what kinds of data they are collecting. Now, this comes after earlier in December, another bipartisan group of lawmakers, including Marco Rubio, introduced legislation re referred to as the Anti-Social CCP Act that would prohibit the use of ByteDance's TikTok platform in the United States, addressing concerns about the platforms being used to spy on Americans. Senator Amy Klobuchar saying that bipartisan support does exist for these bills, warning about the challenge, though, that's coming from the tech lobby, saying that the lobby is so powerful that support for bipartisan bills can fall apart within as little as 24 hours. Now, remember Frances Haugen? She was the Facebook whistleblower. She actually backs that Platform Accountability and Transparency Act. She says the U.S. is asleep at the wheel, and it's like the auto industry before seatbelt laws. So that's why she's advocating for this kind of legislation, John. Uh, Julia, yeah, I, I wonder, let, let's bring in first uh, CNBC senior congressional correspondent Elon Moy. Um, Elon, it looks questionable whether the GOP is going to be able to agree on a speaker, much less agree with the Democrats on how to regulate social media. So is it really going to happen this year, given the political climate? Yeah, John, right now, all of the drama is about the internal politics within the GOP. But I think the TikTok example is really interesting and really telling. And that's because one of the barriers to big tech regulation over the past two years has been that even though there is bipartisan support, Republicans and Democrats do agree that something should be done to bring in big tech. They don't come from the same place on this. On the TikTok example, um, that is a nexus of issues that both Republicans and Democrats have been able to get on board with. And that is combining the issue of big tech with the issue of national security in China. We know that uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is a big China hawk. We've also heard the same thing from Senator Marco Rubio, um, who included national security and sort of big tech as part of his vision for American renewal over the weekend. Um, so you might see a reframing of the big tech legislation, the big tech backlash issues around national security as a way to win bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. Right, Neilan, I, I keep coming back to Senator Amy Klobuchar's comments about how powerful the tech lobby is. Um, and we've known that they've increased spending, but it's only in the tens of millions of dollars. These companies have billions and billions and billions to spend. Is that a powerful force, Elon, when it comes to TikTok as well? What does that look like? And how effective would that be when this is such a bipartisan issue, as you say? Yeah, well, Klobuchar likes to say that her kids have even called out the big tech companies as being mean to their moms. So she's taken this somewhat personally here. But I think it's also important to remember where they're situated. Uh, big tech obviously has a big presence in California. That's the seed of uh, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who's also an influential member in the House. So there is some division amongst Democrats as well over how to address this. And that's been a snag in just getting some of these bills out of committee, um, in which case Democrats have needed Republicans to get on board in order to create these sort of um, bipartisan coalitions to move legislation forward. And big tech has leveraged those divisions.
Julia, we seem to be entering Mark Zuckerberg's dream scenario where they're finally focusing on TikTok and, you know, Twitter, Elon Musk is a bigger uh, draw attention-wise than he is. So, so we're focused on, on Twitter somewhat, even though it's private, more than Facebook. But also, Zuckerberg doesn't seem to be focused on Facebook. Um, does this work for, for Meta's stock? Uh, as long as they're spending on the metaverse, perhaps, that, that the attention, the regulation attention at least, seems to be going elsewhere? Well, when you say Zuckerberg's not focused on Facebook, I think what you're indicating is that he's too focused on the metaverse. I would say that he recently um, indicated in the most recent earnings call that he does understand that Facebook and Instagram, which are the bread and butter of Facebook's revenue um, generating engines, are important right now. But you are absolutely right, John, that TikTok is a major threat to Facebook, but also to Snap. And we cannot underestimate the impact TikTok has had on these companies. And we've seen them all try to imitate and copy and learn from what has been so successful for TikTok. If TikTok is limited, if there is um, a, a for sale of um, TikTok by ByteDance to some U.S.-owned entity, that would all be a positive for Meta. I mean, we see Meta shares up 3.5% right now. I don't think it's simply on that news, but we have seen in the past when there has been um, a, a big push to regulate the company, um, to regulate TikTok, we have seen that positively impact MetaShares. So although I would say that's not likely the cause of this, this gain today. So I think it's really interesting to see what kind of regulation could happen to TikTok, how that could be beneficial, or even, even if it's simply a distraction for TikTok, how that could be beneficial for Meta even and also potentially for Snap. And I think you're right that Meta has been the source of so much um, attention and criticism and critique. I mean, I just mentioned Fra Francis Haugen and the Facebook files. Right now, you have these other companies that are drawing some of the heat. I mean, yeah, Julia, Meta's bounce could have something to do with that. I mean, the amount that it's up more than 3%. It's mostly Chinese tech stocks that are up mm -hmm. that much or more of any size. Elon, Julia, thank you. Meanwhile, Morgan Stanley's software playbook, that's on the other side of this break. Tech Check is back in just a moment. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Welcome back to Check Check. I'm Bertha Coombs. Here's what's happening at this hour. After a dip in November and December, mortgage rates are higher today. The average rate on a 30-year fixed home loan is more than 6.5%, according to Mortgage News Daily. For the buyer of a median-priced home, that translates into a monthly payment of about $2,100, not including taxes and insurance, and an increase of more than 60% from this time last year. PayPal stock trading higher today after getting upgraded to buy from hold at Truist. The firm also raising its price target on the stock to $95 a share, saying that revenue estimates now look reasonable. 
PayPal stock is currently trading at around $74 a share. And casino stocks are rallying on hopes of renewed business in Macau as China relaxes its COVID-19 policies and restrictions. Wynn getting upgraded to overweight from equal weight at Wells Fargo. The upgrade also giving other names in the space a boost like Las Vegas Sands, Malco, and MGM Resorts. Although I will tell you guys, I was in Vegas a couple of months ago. It's packed. Yeah. Conventions are big. CES is back. Big. Agree. Agree. I, I was there um, a month or so ago as well. Uh, Bertha, thanks. Meanwhile, as the saying goes, it's always darkest before the dawn. And that's how our next guest views the software industry heading into 2023, especially if you've got a long-term horizon. Joining us now, Morgan Stanley's Keith Weiss. Keith, let's talk enterprise software, your top pick, ServiceNow. Why? So right now, uh, one, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, two, right now, I think software overall is in a very interesting spot. Um, sentiment is very low. We see that in low multiples overall. Two, um, the stocks have business models that I think prove more durable than people imagine with the uh, recurring revenues, subscription revenues at almost 90% of revenues for the entire space. And then three, the secular growth trends that are powering software are still very much in place and I think are still going to be invested behind by CIOs. ServiceNow really incorporates all three of these aspects. Good secular positioning as companies try to automate their businesses, a reasonable multiple, especially if you look at it on a free cash flow basis, um, and a company who is um, not just a subscription model, but uh, one of the epitome of a subscription model in that the recurring uh, revenues are uh, over 90% of their overall business. The uh, retention rates of which they recur those revenues are super high. Um, right. They average over 97%. So uh, there are a lot of choppy waters for investors to figure out here, though, including this move toward consumption-based models and the question of who's going to be able to maintain their margins. Uh, there are some names that you uh, call out in this report, including CrowdStrike, Datadog, Snowflake, Toast, uh, Zoom Info. A lot of those names way beaten down. How do you sift through those and figure out when it comes to margins, when it comes to consumption-based pricing, who's got the most experience, who's going to fare the best? Got it. So uh, when it comes to the consumption-based models, what's really interesting on that side of the equation is the ability of those models to um, see the changes in demand impacts fastest. So if you look at a, at a company like Snowflake, they started to see impacts earlier than other vendors. You saw their revenue uh, growth expectations come down sooner because of that consumption model. On the flip side of the equation, when the demand starts to stabilize and improve, which we think happens into the back half of this year, they're actually going to see their revenue growth stabilize faster. They're going to have beats sooner than uh, other vendors will. And that's going to enable them to see better margins on uh, the uplift, if you will, when the demand starts coming back. So we think even now, investors should start looking at some of those best-in-class growth names, um, the names with the highest overall growth, best secular positioning. So those would be the names like the Snowflakes, the Data Dogs are two of our favorites in Keith, terms of businesses that have consumption models, but also really well positioned. Is it worth trying to guess who private equity might take out next as an investing strategy, as a trading strategy, or are you noticing characteristics of the companies that PE is taking out? And do those characteristics provide uh, some guidance for investors on what has value? Yeah, I think the answer is both. Um, you can look at those characteristics of what PE is buying and, and one, understand 
what else are they likely to go after? Because there's still a, a lot of wallet uh, that these PE shops have to go after more software companies. So the, the common attributes, um, high levels of recurring revenues, again, uh, over 90% recurring revenues, good gross margins, we define that as over 80% gross margins, and good retention rates, meaning over 90% retention rates on those recurring revenues. Um, that's been the formula for almost all of these private equity takeouts. Um, they've taken place at a, uh, a level that's above where the overall space is trading. The average private equity takeout in 2022 was at over 10 times trailing 12 month revenues. There's a lot of software that's trading under that level. In fact, over 80% of my coverage group is now trading below those levels. So one, you can take those um, attributes and, and sort of target which names are, are more or less likely to get acquired. But also, it's a longer term signal that these long term investors, which is what a private equity firm is, mm -hmm. they're seeing value at these levels. They understand the cash generative value of these big subscriber bases that these companies are accruing. Yeah. So flip side of what we heard from young Yuma earlier, who was saying to stick with the, the bigger tech companies. Hey, the smaller ones, some of them have some pretty good metrics behind them. Keith Weiss, thank you. Excellent. Thanks for having me. As we had a break, check out shares of Amazon and Roblox last year. They got hit very hard. This morning, though, both stocks getting named top picks. Head over to CNBC.com slash pro to read more about those calls. The Nasdaq, meanwhile, near session lows to start the new year. We're back in two. Welcome back. The price of lithium, a key element used for the production of EVs, also a key Nirvana song, surged in 2022. But will that run continue? I'm so happy because today I found my friend Pippa Stevens on set with a look at what lithium prices mean for EV producers. Hi, Pippa. Hello, John. Great to be here. And it was quite a year for lithium with momentum around electric vehicles, sending the metal to record levels. Prices surged 150 percent in 2022, according to data from Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Over the last two years, lithium's now gained more than 800 percent amid fears that supply just can't keep pace with demand. But Benchmark's Simon Moores noted that in recent weeks, prices have started to retreat for the first time in a while. He pointed to macro factors fueling the weakness, including inflation and supply chain issues that have slowed EV production. Ultimately, Moores said a break in the price euphoria and a moment of reality will buy the supply chain time to build out. Still, the firm reiterated that this is within the backdrop of a tight market, which should support higher for longer prices. Now, despite the metal surge, it hasn't translated to gains across the board for lithium miners. Big players like Albemarle and Livent both down over the last year, with Piedmont Lithium and Lithium Americas, both of which are in pre-production, also lower. One exception, though, is SQM, which gained more than 50 percent last year. But, John, an 800 percent rise in two years is really <laughs> kind of astronomical. Yeah, that, that's a lot. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, the, the U.S. has given up a lot of uh, the battery production supply chain to countries like China. Um, where do we stand on developing a domestic industry? Is China's hold going to crack? Well, it's certainly been a priority for the Biden administration. We saw last spring that they invoked the Defense Production Act for a number of critical minerals 
for electric vehicle batteries. And then over the summer, we got the Inflation Reduction Act, which really is a game changer in the sense that it both ties those EV tax rebates to where the battery materials are sourced. And then it also has those manufacturing credits in an effort to spur domestic supply chain. But the reality is that, you know, these things take a really, really long time, and especially for a new mine. I mean, you can imagine the permitting delays that we might see given a lot of local opposition that usually happens around these projects. So having that federal support is key. But in reality, I mean, we are years and years away from a robust domestic supply chain. Right. So, Pippa, is that why um, the prices of lithium producer shares haven't kept up with the price of actual lithium? I mean, you mentioned Piedmont, right, striking a deal with Tesla. What's it going to take for some of these companies and investors to really buy into them? Well, I think one thing is that we have to look on a company-specific basis to see how their contracts are structured. We did see some movement among the major producers like Albemarle in the past year to change the fixed nature of those contracts to more variable ones because they, of course, wanted to take advantage of this huge surge that we're seeing in the prices. But also, it takes a long time, as I was just saying, to get new production online. So even if prices for lithium are at record highs, you can't necessarily capitalize on that because you can't just bring new supply online. And then, of course, we do have to differentiate between spot prices and then these uh, more the, these prices that the parties typically pay when they're dealing directly with one another. So there is a little bit of variance there. Um, but certainly, uh, the, the shares have not kept up with the surge in the underlying metal. All right. Uh, Pippa, thank you. Pippa Stevens. And after the break, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried expected in court this afternoon. The details when Tech Check returns in two minutes. FTX, found, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried expected to appear in court this afternoon. He is being charged with eight criminal counts, including wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering. Kate Bernie on set with us. Happy New Year, Kate. Happy New Year, Dee. Good to be See back. See you again in person. Um, so we're not really expecting any fireworks from this, but what, what could come out of this? So we are expecting him to plead not guilty to the charges, which is pretty much in line with what we've heard publicly in these interviews. He said that he didn't mean to defraud anybody. He didn't commit fraud, as he's put it. And uh, that is really aligned with what we've seen. He has had some of his other top lieutenants plead guilty. So opposite of what we've seen from some of the other big FTX um, founders and top lieutenants in Alameda, uh, Caroline Ellison, who is the CEO there. The other thing we are expecting, we just got out this morning. So we have that $250 million bond that Sam Beckman freed. It's the reason he's free. So he's yeah. been in Palo Alto in house arrest. That people aren't happy about. Exactly. Especially customers. And so he's got his parents as co-signers. There's two other anonymous co-signers for this bond. Uh, his legal team this morning essentially requested that the court redact the names of the two other co-signers and said that his parents right now are facing harassment issues, and they said it's for safety reasons that they don't want to disclose the names. And that's been a big question is who mm -hmm. else who could it be? is backing these bonds and uh, giving the court confidence that they actually have $250 million if he does fail to show up in court or decides to flee. So that's sort of a piece of intrigue that we got this morning, so we should get more on that. The appearance is around 2 p.m. Eastern. Right. That'll be, yeah, that's interesting. There's a number of people it could be yeah. said that they are still kind of unwavering in their support of Sam Bankman-Fried. Not very many of them out there. So. Exactly. Um, I want to ask you, though, the whole, there's another saga sort of brewing between Gemini, that's the Winklevoss Twins yep. uh, crypto company exchange, and Genesis, which yes. was what, like the only crypto lender in yeah. this space for how long? Um, break that down for us. Sure. And 
it kind of tells us, again, a story that we've been following for the last year is that everyone's trying to get money out. No one can get it. They all owe their customers. Yeah, and so it's sort of this daisy chain of lending. So Gemini is another one of these big consumer crypto exchanges. They had this interest-bearing product where you'd put your money in, you'd get you know, 8 or 10% interest back. The way that they were getting that was on the back end they were lending. And yeah. Genesis is the company, was really the first lending desk out there. It got hit by FTX, had to shut down. Meanwhile, Gemini has about a billion dollars in customer money locked up in that lending platform, and they are facing class action lawsuits. Their backs are against the wall, and they're trying to figure out how to get repayment and how to get out of this. So right now, they've been really working behind the scenes with this company, DCG. It's a parent company of that lending company I mentioned. They've been trying to negotiate outside of bankruptcy court. Mm -hmm. We had Cameron Winklevoss of Facebook fame and is now the, the co-founder and runs this, um, yeah. this crypto exchange. He's come out and essentially blamed Barry Silbert, who is the, the head of DCG, and said he was negotiating in bad faith. He was using bad faith tactics, as he put it, um, and essentially saying that you're not working with us. He yeah. said that DCG owes Genesis about $1.7 billion. Barry Silbert, meanwhile, on Twitter, responding, saying that they've really tried to work with Gemini. So it's this back and forth, but they've all got their own interest here. They're trying to yeah. get customer money back. Gem, uh, excuse me, Genesis is trying to find, exactly, they're try, they're, everyone's trying to find money that may or may not be out there. And exactly. It all, as happens in crypto, it all spills out into the public. And they're going to the court of public opinion, which yeah. is interesting. So clearly this is a tactic here to try to say, hey, it's not just us that are losing money. It's not which, just us as co-founders. Which can blow things up very quickly, exactly. as we've seen. Yeah. Um, so we'll continue to track that. Kate Bernie, thank, thank you. you. Done. Now, up next, fintech beaten down over the last year, but this morning, two names get upgrades. We're going to break down the bull cases on the other side of this break. Twenty twenty two capped off a brutal year for fintech. Take a look at the Global X Fintech ETF. Top holdings there include Fiserv, Block Intuit, down more than fifty percent in twenty twenty two, underperforming the broader Nasdaq, as well as the XLF, which tracks the SP financial sector, so doing worse than finances and tech. Similar story for Kathy Wood's ARC Fintech Innovation ETF, down sixty-five percent last year. As for valuations across fintech, well, let's dive into some of the major players here. P.E. ratios for Block and PayPal slashed by more than half year to date. Price to sales ratios for the likes of Affirm and Robinhood also suffering massive losses. Still, not all of the straight writing off the sector yet. Truist out with a new note upgrading PayPal to buy and bear taking Block to outperform this morning as well. The analyst behind that call joins Closing Bell later this afternoon. John, we spent a lot of time talking about fintech over the last few years, it's rise and then the fall that we've seen. Um, you know, we still remember when the likes of PayPal was worth more than the majority of the big banks on the street. So <laughs> now what these analysts are saying is it's too negative. The question is, do they ever reach those heights again? Well, I, I think, D, it's important for investors not to let um, just Wall Street define what fintech is, or even kind of the popular conversation. I mean, you mentioned Bill.com at the top as part of this index into it, but Visa is also fintech. You mentioned Fiserv. Toast is fintech, right? App Lovin arguably is fintech. Mm -hmm. Ways yep. that uh, companies are using technology to either smooth out or bring data into payment ecosystems. So I think on the enterprise side, there are lots of different ways to play this, and the consumer side got a lot of the hype. Meanwhile, let's get another check 
on Tesla. The stock hitting new 52-week lows this morning. Uh, that's its single biggest day drop since September 2020. Shares getting closer to that $100 level here. Um, D, uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes Ouch. from here. Back Rough near start to the those year. lows. Indeed. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Tech Check. Deere has been making big investments in robotics, AI, and drones, and it would appear to be paying off the stock a big winner of last year. Ahead of, our, ahead of CS, our Seema Modi sat down with the company's technology chief, joins us with the highlights. Seema. Hey, Dee, and one piece of news here from my interview with the CTO, Jamie Hinman. He is in the final stages of picking a satellite partner to broaden Deere's a digital footprint of farms. The goal essentially is to give farmers a more accurate read of what's happening across their, la their land, find out which parts are more productive, yielding more crop, or experiencing issues. We look at the burgeoning efforts that are happening in, in low Earth orbit satellites, as an example, uh, in the LEO constellations as a, a way potentially for us to start to solve some of those connectivity issues and make connectivity truly global uh, for John Deere customers. Now, with farmer profits at record levels, John Deere has no plans to slow down its investing in technology. Hidman says the budget for 2023 will be, quote, consistent with last year. Expect an announcement from Deere on clean energy, running more of their equipment on batteries and biofuels like hydrogen. And that's partly why the buy side is bullish on John Deere, which has returned about 20 percent in the past one year, vastly outperforming its industrial peers. Uh, Mario Gabelli, a longtime investor, his portfolio manager, Brian Sponheimer, telling us uh, we would expect the stock to perform well as the year sets up as a good one for the industry. The company continues to offer technologies that make the farmer considerably more productive than the machines used in each previous version. John, the key wild card, I guess, for this year is whether crop prices stay high. That's what leads to higher profits for farmers and their ability to pay out for this technology. Indeed. And I love how Deere is at the Consumer Electronics Show. For people with really, yeah, really big gardens and tractors. Uh, <laughs> Seema, thanks. Yeah. One more thing before we go. Be sure to tune in throughout the week as we kick off our CES coverage. We're going to sit down with the CEOs of AMD. That's Lisa Su, Qualcomm, Cristiano Amon, uh, CrowdStrike to discuss their outlook uh, for the year ahead, as well as Amazon's SVP of Devices and Services, Dave, Dave Limp, uh, the Trade Desk CEO, Jeff Green, and NASDAQ's CEO, Adina Friedman. And Julia, you're going to be there in Vegas. I'm, I'm going to stay east this year. I'm going to miss checking out all the new gadgets with you, John. I always love going to CES with you. No, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, one big thing we're going to be focusing on is I know something you and I debate a lot, John, and that is the metaverse and VR. There's going to be a lot of VR technology there. We're going to be checking some of it out. The question is, will this be the year that the metaverse and all this VR technology <laughs> takes off? I think we debate that a lot, guys. I mean, but also sustainability very much in focus for the tech there this year. I mean, never mind tech. John, you booked a lot of the, and Julie, I'm sure you too, booked a lot of the tech executives, but a lot of the keynotes are not even really tech-oriented, dare I say. I mean, we just spoke about Deer that's going to be there. There's also Delta Airlines, BMW, Stellantis. So I don't hey, know, John. Yeah. Precision that's agriculture, it's tech. You got to love it. Uh, looking forward to that coverage, including from you, D, on the ground. Let's get to the judge and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.